Proverbs chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he sins who hastens with his feet. The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. Many entreat the favor of the nobility, and every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. All the brothers of the poor hate him, but much more do his friends go far from him. He may pursue them with words, yet they abandon him. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, and his favor is like dew on the grass. A foolish son is, in, is the ruin of his father, and a contentious, contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Let's pray together. Lord, we just ask for a supernatural work of your spirit now as we turn to your word. Lord, as this, wor- this world gets worse and worse, as it appears to us, Lord, we are so thankful that we have your word to turn to. We're so grateful that it accomplishes everything that you wanted to accomplish in our lives, Lord. We're so grateful that it doesn't change. We're so grateful that you don't change. We're so grateful that you are who you are and it's wonderful who you are. So we ask for a supernatural work of your Holy Spirit in our lives as we look into your word. We pray that you would convict us and comfort us and all the things that you're so faithful to do. We thank you that you want to do it and you want to further conform us to the image of Christ. We are yielded before you. We want to be made into those disciples that you want us to be. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've seen these three words over and over again uh, throughout the book of Proverbs. As we've studied it, we've seen these words, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And he wants us to know the things of him. He wants to have our lives built upon his word. And he's going to talk about that as we go through this chapter. He's going to talk about how wise it is to be able to allow him to pour into our lives. There's not much more that's worthy of our time than letting him pour into us and let us, letting him feed us. Now remember when the disciples went fishing subsequent to his resurrection, Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the rest followed. And they weren't successful. And Jesus was there cooking them breakfast telling them that what they're doing wrong and getting their attention. And, and subsequent to that, once they got to shore, 
he said to Peter, you know, do you love me more than these? And there was this dialogue, as you are familiar with, and he said, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend my lambs. He didn't say, if you love me, multiply my sheep. If you love me, beat my sheep. For sure, he didn't say that. There's a lot of things he didn't say, but what he did say is that, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he wants us as his sheep to be fed. And so he gives us this revelation. And revelation is a privilege. The word of God is a privilege to be able to have, to be able to turn to, to be able to have his word speak to us and rearrange things where needed. Because only he can do that. We're told in Hebrews that that the word of God pierces through bone and marrow and judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. What's hilarious to me in, in, a, in an odd way is, or maybe it's ironic or however you would say it, but man has set himself up as one that judges God's word when all the time God's word judges us. It's a mirror. And James tells us that we're unwise when we look into it and we forget what we look like. And the brilliant thing about mirrors is that they're, they're a present tense snapshot of our condition physically. And that's the beauty of the imagery that that James uses by the Spirit, that God's Word is like a mirror to us. Because it gives us a present tense snapshot of who we are, how we're doing spiritually. And God knows that that changes one moment to the next, one day to the next. So he gives us this amazing revelation for us to have him speak to us through. And as a result, he shapes us. And you remember the parable of the soils. And we went over that when we went through the Gospels. And he talked about the one that has the heart that can handle the word of God being sown into it is the one that bears fruit. And so, so it's incumbent upon us to be, have hearts that are receptive to his word. Not just in our private devotions. Not just when we're among God's people and we're studying it collectively. But any time where God speaks to our hearts, and, he's, and there's something called general revelation where we see the creation of the world that speaks to his existence. Then we're told all about special revelation where we have his word that reveals Jesus and the gospel and all of that. But then there's something called specific revelation where he speaks individually to our hearts and he redirects us. And he does that by his Holy Spirit. And so the what he wants from us, is, as, especially as we go through Proverbs, especially because it's all about this wisdom, is for us to have hearts that are pliable, that are open, that are receptive, that can handle him sowing his word into our hearts. And the deception, we've talked about this many times, the deception is that I just agree with it and that's all that God is looking at. But that's not really the case. I mean, he wants us to agree with it. He wants us to believe his word. He wants all those things, but he wants us to put it into action. And as we've seen, as we've gone through the book of Proverbs, he defines a fool as one that doesn't do what has been revealed for them to do. And so we can be foolish in any given time. So chapter 19 here, he's going to get to some very practical things. Last week and the week before, we saw him talk about the tongue. He keeps talking about the tongue. Why does he keep doing that? It's convicting. Because we need it. Because our tongues need taming. More importantly, our hearts need changing so that our tongues will be
be affected. But he's going to continue that theme here of, of the tongue. He's going to continue the theme of, of just how to be appropriate with people and all these things. A lot of practical things in here. And verse 1 says, Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. This is one of those better proverbs where he begins a proverb with better, and it's really a, he's contrasting ideas here. So he speaks of the poor, and Proverbs speaks a lot to being wise with our stewardship, being wise with money and God's resources, and, and, and even beyond those things, is, of course, is, involves stewardship, but it does include finances. And, he, and there's a lot of principles in Proverbs that if you, if you work hard, mostly it, it covers the, our work ethics, Working hard, being faithful, being diligent. You know, consider the ant, you sluggard. You know, he doesn't mince words. Uh, he just, just, just tells us straight up that he requires us as his, as his servants to be faithful and to work hard. And so he talks about this, and then he gets to this in verse 1 here, talking about better is the fool who walks in his integrity. Now, there's a certain type of person, maybe that has never been poor, or has a certain background in that context or whatever, and they make assumptions about the poor that are incorrect. And one of those assumptions can be that poor people are not, have, don't have integrity, and they falsely think that if they did have integrity, then they wouldn't be poor. And this was common in this culture, and even into the Gospels, we see the disciples struggle with this a little bit related to sickness. You know, did he sin or his parents sin? That's why this person's sick. And, and, and there's even false theology today that talks about that as well. But one of the things we need to be reminded of, if we don't already know it, or we haven't thought about it in a while, is that just because you're poor doesn't mean you can't have integrity. And just because you're rich doesn't, definitely doesn't necessarily mean that you have integrity. So he says here, it's better for the poor who walks in his. Notice the word his there. It's something that he possesses. It's something that we own. Our integrity is something that's ours. That something can't, someone can take that from us. We can't be forced into relinquishing our integrity. It's something that we own, we possess. As Christians, it's our Christian character. It's an overflow of our relationship with him that he wants us to retain and walk in and in part wants us to use to win people to Christ, to have them see a different kind of life. Because it's getting worse and worse in this world. I mean, talk about a lack of integrity. It just, gets, it just grows in terms of what we see in our culture and people not sticking to their word and not, not honoring what they say they're going to do and, and you know, ripping people off and taking advantage of people and all of that. If there's, any, if there's ever been a time that God's called us to walk in integrity, it's now. And you have to do the smallest amount of things related to integrity to get people's attention. They notice it like, wow, you, you, you did that. And it was like, that's just a result of just being a decent person. Not even a Christian, just a decent person. But the thing is, people are not being raised as decent people anymore, unfortunately. They're being raised by the culture. And the culture is so um, conditional in their, their love and in their character and all of that. And he contrasts this poor person who walks his integrity with one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. And, you know, just it seems like the bar of holiness is getting lower and lower and lower in churches, in our culture, 
and we put up with things that we'd never put up with before. We say things are okay that we'd never say in the past would be okay. And I just love the, the, the strength of God's word saying there's such a thing as perverse lips, that there's perversity out there. People get offended by even using the word perversion. How dare you say that something's perverse? Who are you to say that? Who are you to judge? I'm no one to judge. But I, I have God's word, and God has definite standards. And I'm not being the sin police, and I'm not being the Holy Spirit in your life, but what you just said isn't, isn't right. There's times where God calls us to speak up and, and say the appropriate thing. But I love the strength of it. You know, who is perverse in his lips. That can cover filthy language. It can, it can cover coarse jesting or jokes or things that aren't proper or fitting. It can be gossip. It can be slander. It could be um, speaking evil of someone. It could, it, it, there's so many things that it could cover there. And, and it, it, you know, it, it's no wonder that these things come out more and more from our lives because of the things that we take in and we think that that's okay because, well, it doesn't hurt me, it doesn't affect me, but yet it does. It does. What we put in affects us. As it's been said, garbage in, garbage out. And we wonder, why am I dealing with all this stuff and these, my thoughts and my heart and these things that come out of my mouth and all that? Well, because we're filling ourselves with garbage all the time. And so no one's saying that. The best-selling books in Christian bookstores are not talking about standards of holiness. No one wants to hear that. They, they just want to define it for themselves. Very important for us to see. It's important for us to have speak with a pure mouth, have pure things coming out of our lives to people, to bless other people, that no corrupt communication would come forth out of our mouths, and only that which is edifying, that would grace, impart grace to the hearers. Important. Verse 2. Also, so he's adding to it, also it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge. There's our word again, knowledge. And he sins who hastens with his feet. So not good for a soul to be without knowledge. Again, the importance of letting the Lord sow his eternal word into our hearts and having a steady diet of the word of God in our lives. Jesus said, man does not live, on, live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we, you, you would never think that you're going to be healthy if you ate once a week, once a month, once every three months. Obviously, that wouldn't be very good for our physical bodies. But we do this thing where we think if we don't, you know, it, we can go long periods of time without feeding ourselves spiritual knowledge or spiritual sustenance and somehow we're still going to be healthy and it's just not going to happen. I've heard it said that our ministries and our lives will never rise above our personal devotional life. And I believe that. And, and the extent to which that we go deeper into the things of the Lord, the more platforms he's going to give us, the more influence he's going to give us, the more capacity he's going to give us to minister to people and all of those things. But also it'll affect our walk and how we lead our marriages and our families and all the influences that we have in our lives so he says it is good or is not good for a soul to be without knowledge and then he says at the end of verse two and he he sins who hastens with his feet hasten means to hurry so hastens with his feet means that you were rushing into things that we're making decisions too quickly than we should. 
That's something that's dangerous in our walk. We have to be very careful about that. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 says, Whoever believes will not act hastily. And in part of that verse, he talks about the Messiah. So the things that, it was funny because we think that we're acting in faith and we're exercising our faith when we act quickly sometimes. That's what we are tempted to think. But actually it takes more faith to wait on the Lord. It takes more faith to wait on him. And he tells us to do it. Psalm 27 verse 14 says, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And he adds an exclamation point. He's telling us to wait on the Lord. We know this verse very well, most of us. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But we say this waiting is wearing me out. (laughs) you know I I can't wait any longer it's so hard and I understand that and it's hard for all of us at times to wait but it it, it doesn't take more faith to rush it's not an act of faith it's not a laudable respectable thing to rush through something quickly and make decisions it doesn't require more faith what requires more faith and it honors the Lord and, and it actually ensures that we don't make unnecessary decisions that are going to harm us is that we wait for his perfect timing. There are things that we've been praying for as a church for almost the whole time we've been in existence. The radio station license is one of the things we've been praying about for, I think, eight years now. We're still praying for that. We're still praying for God to answer that prayer, to, to grant Calvary Chapel Turlock this license and to have this radio station built that will cover from Merced to Lodi solid Bible teaching. It's getting close to happening. So sometimes those things hap- you know, take years and years and years before they come to fruition. And so God calls us to be patient. And it's hard, but he knows that as we wait on him, there's things he's developing in us, dependence upon him. He's developing our 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 godliness in so many ways as we just wait on him and wait on him and wait on him and and we can think that we're not really doing anything that's worthy of you know that God would look at and say you're doing the right thing well no he wants me to take action I just need to you know he'll guide a moving target that kind of thing he sometimes he just says wait be still know that I am God and just wait for my timing and he does it and he's so faithful to do it so he says and he so he adds the weight of it at the end of verse 2 and he sins who hastens with his feet. Not just it's unwise. He who rushes and hurries, makes decisions quickly, getting ahead of the Lord, that to him that's sin. You know, Jesus said and talked about if those that do those things, don't do the things that they ought to do to him, it is sin. Or actually Paul said that. So there's even things, good things that he calls us to do that when we don't do them, to him it is sin. So it's, we have to wait. We have to wait for his timing and be patient and he'll bless that. It's, I've seen it happen so many times in so many different lives. It's a beautiful thing to wait on the Lord. And he actually said in those verses that I quoted that we'll actually receive strength from him as we wait on him and it brings him glory. Verse 3. The foolishness of a man twists his way and his heart frets against the Lord. The foolishness of a man twists his way. 
So the foolishness is represented in just doing things in our own wisdom. Doing things not according to his word. Taking his word and not treating it as what he intends it to be in our lives. And disobeying it and doing things our way. That's foolishness. He's defined that many times throughout this, throughout this book as we've looked through Proverbs. So he says that's foolishness. And we think that we're doing the right thing. We think we're doing the wise thing. But in reality, we're actually doing the wrong thing. And it's twisting our way. The way is the imagery of a path. So we're on a path. And as we think it's straight because we're working in our own wisdom and we're doing the right thing. But yet he says if we're going according to his wisdom... That's the straight path. The other path of doing things our own way makes it windy and twisty, twisting and, and not a safe path on which to travel. And so he says that's the reality. And then, and then he says what well, makes it worse, the last part of verse 3, is that, and his heart frets against the Lord. Sometimes we disobey God. We're in rebellion to him. We're not doing the things we should do. And we do that, all of us do that at, 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 on some level. There are people that turn their back on the Lord. And they live in willful disobedience to the Lord. They're under God's discipline. And what happens is they, God allows them to reap what they sow. And he wants them to use that experience to, to come back to him. To see that they really can't run their lives as well as they thought they could. And, and he wants to use that so that they'll turn back to him. But what they do is, and what this verse is talking about, is that they get bitter against God. So they disobey God. They, they go against all the things that he said to do, all the safeguards, all the things that, that produce an abundant life, all those things. They go against all of that. And then he lets them reap what they sow. He gives them their choice to do it. They reap the consequences, and they get mad at him for allowing it. That's how we can be, all of us. I've seen it so many times with people that have walked away from the Lord and, and they get bitter. But they're the ones that did that. And, and so Jesus was honest with us. He said, if a, you know, he talked about the wise man who built his house upon the rock and we, when the storms can't come and all of that, his house that was built on the rock, that, you know, that house stood and that the, the house that was built on the rock is compared to the life that hears God's word and not just hears it, but actually obeys it and puts it into practice. He says that life will stand, that house will stand. But he says when the storms come, when, 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 that's the, that's the word, when. He's, he's not lying to us, he's saying the storms are going to come. And either you have the proper foundation that's been built upon obedience to his word, or you haven't. And if you haven't, then that's what's going to happen. We can't get mad at him and get bitter at him for allowing the things to happen that are a result of our disobedience to him. You know, and it's, it, this isn't anything new. You remember the very, the very beginning of the book with Adam and Eve. I mean, here they sin. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam wasn't deceived, but he obeyed his wife instead of obeying the Lord. And God calls him into account, and he says... Well, it's the woman that you gave me. He's already removed himself twice. <laughs> it was God and then the woman. He's already freed. And then she talks about the serpent. It says, the serpent deceived me and all, all of those things. So it, it's not, it goes all the way back to the beginning that we can blame shift. 
Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21, they will pass through a hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. So even when God's going to judge God's people, they're still going to be upset at him. And it, we went, when we went through the book of Revelation, we saw that all this wrath's being poured out on this world. It's all coming to them. It's all appropriate, all of that. And he says, and they still didn't repent. And they shake their fists at him. And they, you know, they're still angry and bitter and all that. And they've been rebelling and doing everything against what he said to do all this time. It's in all of us to blame God for the things that happen as a result of our foolish choices and our disobedience. So he's just honest with us and he, he says it there. Verse 4. Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. And this is, one of, I believe, one of those proverbs that is stating reality. He's not prescribing something or, or he's advocating, criticizing the poor or any of those things. He's saying this is how the world treats people. When you have a pickup, you find out who your friends are. You just do. When you have a swimming pool or when you have, um, you know, I, I don't know, when you have a lot of money, all of a sudden people are wanting to spend time with you more. Not that I've experienced that firsthand, but, you know, I've talked to people and, and, and they don't know who their true friends are. That's one of the challenges they say exists because they're wealthy. Because we don't know who, who to really trust. We don't know who's just trying to get something from me. And that's, that's reality. Wealth makes many friends. But the poor is separated from his friend. And I think, again, it speaks to the fact that we recognize this is the case, that the poor, we need to be a friend of the poor. We need to be friendly to those that the world has cast off. We need to be Jesus' hands and feet in their lives. You know, the VBS that we had this week, we're going to show slides and all of that next, next Sunday, just a little bit about what it looked like and everything, and have Chris and Angie give a report. But, you know, a lot of those kids are really hungry, physically hungry, and, and got to feed a lot of them, and it was a huge privilege. God wants us to be a friend to the poor. He wants us to be there for people and all of that. And, yes, this world is set up, and the way it works in terms of how this world treats people isn't good, but we need to rise above that. And we need to be faithful to those that don't have a lot of people in their lives. Verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who speaks, and he who speaks lies will not escape. And we've seen this over and over again. We've seen him talk about false witnesses. And this was common because they would come to the gates of the city. That was kind of the the place where all of the decisions were made, that's where all the, the leaders of the city that were um, responsible for meeting out justice and all those things, they would be at the, the gates of the city. So if you had a problem, you'd bring your case before them, you'd present it, and then they'd make a, a, a decision. They'd render a judgment. And a lot of times they would have people that would come and they would give false testimony. We saw that in the, in the trial of the Lord Jesus where they, they had false, uh, you know, witnesses said all these false and these lies, these false things and lies about, about him. And so, now we're not on the stand giving false testimony in a court of law all the time. 
But we can give false testimony in our relationships and we can misrepresent things and we can not be honest and we can, you know, have you heard the white lie thing? And Well, it's just a little white lie. Like, no, it's Jesus didn't give white lies. He didn't tell us white lies. We need to be honest. So he says, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who lies will not escape. Listen to what he says in Revelation 28 verse 8, who, who are not going to... They're not going to be in heaven. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So he includes liars. I mean, that's how much he hates it. He hates it. He wants us to speak the truth in love, to be honest with people and all of that, and he, and he hates it. So he gives another warning there in verse 5. Verse 6, many entreat the favor of the nobility, and every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. Again, this is kind of the same type of favoritism thing that we saw in the, in the previous uh, verses, verse, in verse 4. That people do give favor to people that, have, that are in uh, positions of authority and, and have wealth and all of that. Um, and so, again, he's not called us to show favoritism. He's called us to be honest and bless everybody equally. Um, and so, we, you know, people will give us things to get things from us. They'll flatter us with words. They'll give us gifts. And we have to be very, very careful about that. Verse 7. All the brothers of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with words, yet they abandon him. So this again, speaking of the, how the poor are treated. And yes, there can be those that continue to try to, to entreat or in, to convince people to help them, family members, and, and they've ruined that trust, they've burned those bridges and all of that. Um, and again, we just have to be loving to them. We have to be Jesus's hands and feet. We have to be his heart to people. We have to be available for people. People don't treat people well. And so we should be very gracious. We should be very hospitable. We should be just giving and open and, and just transparent with people and just say, look, I, I know that you're struggling. That's okay. We're all struggling in different ways. We want to be there for you. We want to help you and all of that. Verse 8. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. So it's, it's not a wrong thing to love your own soul. <laughs> we have to take care of our own soul. We have to be good stewards of our souls. And so he calls us to get that wisdom, that understanding. He repeats it once again. How many times have we seen it? And he doesn't repeat things just for the sake of repeating them. He just keeps hitting it and keeps hitting it and keeps hitting it. He wants us to give place to his word, give place to learning from other people and their wisdom and their relationship that they have with us and how they pour into us and the things they want to add to our lives and speak into our lives. We need to heed those things and be teachable and open before them. Very important. And then he says again, another false witness in verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. So another warning there. 
Verse 10, luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. So a fool is someone that, the whole idea is what's appropriate. If you haven't done, the, I mean, there's a, I call him a young man. He's, you know, when you're older, you can call people in their 20s a young man, I guess. Um, the young man that I know, he recently just bought a Mercedes and he's probably 21. He's a sophomore in college. He has a Mercedes, and his, the only way he could buy it is his dad co-signed for him. So he's driving around in a Mercedes, and I'm just going, why is this happening to you? <laughs> you know? and, and I'm teasing him. You know, I'm giving him a hard time. Oh, you're just jealous. You know, you know, we, we tease each other. But he's not a fool, so I'm not saying he's a fool. I hope he's not listening. Um, but it's just appropriate for people to have certain things when they've done the whole thing that God's talking about in his word related to hard work. I mean, there's, it's fitting for people to have things when they've worked hard. But it's not fitting for people that, and it just reminds me of people that win the lottery sometimes. And their lives are ruined. They have all this money all of a sudden, they have all this luxury, all these things, and then they just, they just waste it all. And their lives become way worse than they were before because they can't handle it. So that's kind of the idea. It's like don't contribute to fools having luxury if they haven't done the things that they're supposed to do to have that luxury. Very important for us. And he says much less for a servant to rule over princes. It's just as it's inappropriate for servants in a kingdom that has princes and kings and all that to be ruling over those people that they should be ruled over. It's just as inappropriate for this, these fools to have luxury than it is for those people to rule over people that are supposed to be ruling over them. That's the idea. Verse 11. A discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Slow to anger. A short fuse is not what God's aiming at. He wants the long fuse in us. And that takes discretion. It takes a man or a woman that is weighing everything appropriately and, and actually senses in themselves this rage that rises up. And I just speak from theory. I mean, I'm just, I've talked to other people. I can't relate to this in real life, but, um, you know, just kidding. But, you know, you, you, you sense this rage come up and you give those things over to the Lord and you pray and you ask God, help me right now. I'm, I'm losing control. I, I want to lash out right now. And you ask for his help and his grace and he gives it at that moment and he gives you patience and all those things. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to have that type of self-control and he gives us self-control by his Holy Spirit as we rely upon him and he'll give us self-control. So he says that's that's beautiful thing. That's showing discretion. And he says, and his glory, this man with discretion, is to overlook a transgression. So it's not just overlooking what appears to be a transgression when we think we could be wrong. Well, this appears to be a transgression, so I'm going to overlook that and be gracious and all that because I don't know for sure. That's true, too. We have to be gracious there. But we're talking a real transgression, something that someone does. It doesn't mean that we ignore what they've done. It doesn't mean that we excuse it. It doesn't mean that any of those things. But we don't hold it against them. We forgive. We 
react appropriately. We do the things that we're supposed to do related to what's biblical and everything. But we're, we still don't hold it against them. We don't hold a grudge. We don't, uh, you know, bring it up in the future. How many of us have done that in the past? Someone's done something and we bring it up. Wait a minute. Why'd you bring that up? I thought you forgave me of that and everything, and now you're bringing it up 10 years later. That's, that's not what we should be doing either. So he says we should overlook transgressions. And we're told in the book of James that love covers a multitude of sins. So we're called to be gracious and be loving and to be slow to anger and to overlook things. I mean, think about what Jesus has to overlook with us on a daily basis. Think about what he has to be gracious with. So if he has to be gracious with us and he's our example, then we should be gracious with other people and to overlook people's failures because they're going to fail. And again, if we can't have a gracious environment, if we can't have a place where people can fail and make mistakes and not be treated horribly or, or shunned or made fun of or talked about or whatever it is, then we can't have an, an, an a environment where people can flourish and grow as his disciples. Verse 12. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. So he's warning us and saying, look, you have to be careful about authority. God has set up authority. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 13, verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So the authorities in this world, and it could be civic authorities, uh, government, religious, or, you know, Christian in the church, every kind of authority, God has set up those types of authorities. And so for us, we have to be subject to those things, and he says we have to be careful because the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion might get tweeted against. <laughs> uh, you know, you might, you, might, you might be on the receiving end of something like that, something carnal or whatever. Um, but his favor is like a dew on the grass. And that's, that's something that's a blessing if you're a farmer. And if you're growing things and all of that, the dew and everything. So very important for us to see that. And, his, and, and you know, God loves it when we are good citizens. We should be the best obedience subjected in, in humility, sir, you know, citizens in this, in this world, Christians should be. should be model citizens. And it's, again, that's another thing that's getting worse and worse and worse in our cult- culture. People just feel free to disobey whatever law anytime they want to. And um, he hasn't called us to that. Verse 13. A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. I want to start a 50-week series on verse 13 this morning. Just kidding. Uh, There's plenty of blame to go around for husbands, too. We can drip with the best of them. But when you talk about a son, you talk about a, a child and all of that, obviously, you know, you put your heart into raising them and all of that, and you want them to to be productive, you want them to be godly, you want the, all these things, and, and when they're not, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. It truly is. And then he talks about this contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. So the imagery here is, and it's true even in Jerusalem today, 
And in that part of the world, they, their, their roofs are flat. So they put the planks and they put the sticks and the reeds and the plaster, a little, you know, and all of that. And then the rainy season comes and then there's dripping. You can't call rescue roofer. You know, in that culture uh, back then to come and help you. And it just drip, 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 drip. And it just grades on you. And there's a danger to your house. There's a danger to, you know, your house getting ruined. And it has to be dealt with and all of that. And so, you know, as spouses, we need to be very careful about being contentious. And, and I think this really is something we shouldn't just fly over real quick. Because we have, we have so much capacity to hurt our spouses, those of us that are married, with our words. And he's been talking about words. We've seen him talk about the tongue and all of that. And we have to be very careful. And we know each other the best. We know each other's weaknesses the best. We're, we're with each other when we're at our weakest times, the most vulnerable times. And also, we, we love each other more than we love anybody else. So it's the perfect situation to do the most amount of harm with our words. And we have to be very careful with that. And God doesn't want us to be contentious with anybody. And, and, you know, obviously there are going to be times where you're going to be debating doctrine or you're going to be standing up for the truth and you're going to be, you may get a little contentious here and there. But when we're talking about our spouses and relationships and all that, God calls us to be at peace with people. And he doesn't want us to have this this relationship where we're just fighting all the time. And so practically speaking, what does that look like? How do I not be contentious with my spouse? The, the, the first thing is I need to have, of course, times where I'm getting fed and I'm having time with God. If we never ever have time with God and we never ever pour into ourselves spiritually, then the flesh is going to come out. I know that may seem oversimplistic and obvious, but it's true for all of us. And we have to be very careful with that. We have to have that time with him. We have to spend that time, have his heart, have his patience, have the fruit of the spirit coming from our lives and all of that. And if we say that, well, we're going to be, you know, godly and all that in our marriages and, and in our homes, but we, yet we never feed ourselves spiritually, then the flesh is going to be the predominant thing that the other person's going to experience. And it's going to be bad. So God doesn't want that. So we have to be patient. The other thing is we have to try to understand their perspective and try to picture what they're going through and what they're, how they're experiencing the situation from their perspective and do our hard, do, work our hardest to be able to, and this is true not just for spouses and all of that, any relationship where we have potential to have contentions is to put ourselves in their shoes. How does it feel to be in their shoes? That can help us with not being contentious. That can help us to be compassionate and patient and all of that. And then the other thing is, this is just maybe like super, super practical, where it's like, you know, of course, but just leave the room. If, if, you know, if you're going to say something you're going to regret, leave the room. Just say, I got to go for a little bit and just go pray. That's so much better than to say something that later you're going to regret. Just get out of there. When you sense that you're not in control and the Holy Spirit's not in control anymore, then leave until you can be under the control of the Spirit. And what if both people did that? There wouldn't be any contentions. We don't have to have contentions at all. We have all the capacity by the Holy Spirit as believers 
to not have any contentions. It's possible. So he says, watch out for that. So that, we won't do a 50-week series. I'll just, that will be the, that's, that, was, that was all the series I'll do on that, thankfully. Verse 14, houses and riches are an influence from fathers, or an inheritance rather, from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So I probably should have read 14 right after I read 13, just to balance that out, so I didn't get the evil eye, the stink eye from some of you women. No, I didn't. I'm just kidding. But uh, the first thing is to recognize that he's talking about houses and riches as an inheritance from fathers, and that's what we receive, as, and he's talking to sons here, and that the firstborn son would receive these things as the inheritance, but he says so it's something way greater than all of that, because our physical inheritance, even though it ultimately comes from the Lord, it's, it's being dispensed from our, our parents, but he says a prudent wife, and prudent means to be wise or sensible, is from the Lord. And sometimes people say, oh, you're so lucky to have that wife. And I'm not lucky. My wife's from, my spouse is from the Lord himself. And I need to recognize that. Now, I don't know why Solomon chose to have 600 wives and 300 concubines. That's a lot of dripping. <laughs> you know, um, that's, that wasn't wise for him at all. He ignored his, his own wisdom there, but um, definitely a prudent wife is from the Lord. Last verse, verse 15. Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. So he's talking about being a sluggard again or a lazy person. And again, the work ethic, how many times have we seen this come through in the Proverbs? Work ethic, work ethic, work hard, be, be faithful, all those things. And he says laziness it allows you to go into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. You know, Paul wrote, if a man won't work, he won't eat. If a person, it doesn't say if he can't work, he won't eat. He says if he won't work, he won't eat. And so God's called us to not enable people with, you know, not helping them help themselves. You know, in the Old Testament, he allowed the poor to go and glean from the outer edges of the fields. He didn't allow the farmers to go through a second time when they were harvesting and all of that. And he set up a, a way for them to be able to get food, but they had to actually go out and go to the fields and get the food. They, they weren't you know, having it delivered to them. And there's, there's times where they can't go out and work, and I, to, I totally understand all of those things. But we're, we're called into being hard workers in, in that kind of life. And we need to train our children to be hard workers. That's getting less and less common in this world where people don't know how to work hard. They don't have a hard, uh, a good work ethic. So he calls us to train our children up in the, in the Lord, and part of that includes having them have a good, solid work ethic. So good instruction for us. We'll stop there. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for all this wisdom, Lord, very practical. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you don't want us to remain who we are. You want us to continue to grow us and stretch us and make us into the, the people that we're called to be. And so we thank you for these verses, Lord. Continue to speak to us related to how we can apply these verses in our lives, Lord. Help us to be great spouses, be hard workers, to help the poor, to be compassionate to the poor, 
Father, we pray that you'd help us to be um, godly witnesses, telling the truth to people, just all the things, God, that you call us to be, to be great citizens, to be subject to authority. Help us to excel in all those things and be examples to others, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.